Hi, this is Steve Addison for the Movements Podcast, the podcast for people who want to multiply disciples and churches everywhere. And this is episode 180. Today we're talking to Guy Kasky about multiplying movements from Houston to the Horn of Africa. Part of my story is that I came to Christ reading the New Testament, and I say that I'm one abnormally born. You know, I really had a visitation in my bedroom, and I started, you know, right from the very very beginning, I had just a different perspective than someone who was culturally born in Texas just from being born again by reading the scriptures. And I got connected to some local churches and church planting and ended up joining the church planting team and and way back in 1989 with a with a real desire to learn and to grow and to reach people that was really my passion was strong evangelism i immediately started telling my story to people and got involved in this church plant and um it was very different than what i expected i was very green and it was very different um than what i had been reading about and but there came a man who became my disciple. He became my spiritual father, Charles Culpepper. And he started, he started really pouring into me and teaching me about missionaries of the past and Dawson Trotman and things about discipleship. And it just, it just, I, it's hard to explain. It just lit everything inside my heart or desire to multiply and reproduce disciples. And my time there led to me planting a church with a team of young people that my wife and I had led to Christ and discipled with a vision for a network of reproducing disciples that certainly is not where we are today, but it it really was the beginning of that. And it was at that church where we went to Ethiopia and that further expanded the vision. What what happened in Ethiopia? Um, God really just wrecked our hearts for the nations. We just got broken for the Horn of Africa, for the nations. We saw things so differently there and realized there, there was this desire to say, whatever we do here in Houston needs to be reproduced there. So if we're going to reproduce disciples there, we want to see them reproduced all the way to the sands of Somalia. And there was just a, a, a broadening in our understanding of God's heart for the nations. And just, I think that opened our eyes further to the needs for reproducing movement. Okay, so if it was going to be a disciple-making movement, it it had to be the same principles and practices in both the Horn of Africa and in Houston. Yes, that's correct. And we were already had a lot of the DNA and doing a lot of it, but it just opened our eyes and stretched us even more to see um, the consistency in DNA here reproduced there. Okay, so how did that play out there in Houston when you came back from the trip? What was different? Um, we decided to mobilize all of our, one, we decided to mobilize all of our house churches and cell groups with a heart for the nation. About three quarters of our members went. We made sure that when we had, had a, a membership class that we emphasized that membership was a commitment to discipleship. And so we taught them kind of our, at that time, it was like a three-thirds process. It wasn't as, I don't think as, 
as effective as what we have today, but it was still a good three-thirds DNA. And so those were some of the things that we made sure that we built in to um, our church. Okay, so it was a single church, but with multiple groups, uh, discipleship groups. That's correct. We even said that, you know, that Sunday was a celebration or a reunion of all the churches and community groups that came together. Okay. And what was the next step in the journey? How did you connect with No Place Left and and, uh, those sorts of relationships? Yes. In about 2011, there was just, you know, a lot of it was just a, the, a call of God, maybe a next step to start more becoming a, a leader who invested in other leaders, was a part of it, even beyond a local um, congregation. And, but also there was a, a bandwidth issue that, we, that I was personally wrestling with about with our celebration, just the, the management of that. And because we did it week every week and there was some real concerns that it was eating up a lot of my time. I think the main thing was, is that it was kind of a move and, and call by God. But then there were some practical things that I felt like I didn't have the, the time or bandwidth to, to preach week in and week out, to organize all kinds of staff. Um, even though we weren't huge, still we'd gotten up to a couple hundred people and, you know, 15 churches, community groups. It was still a lot to organize. And so I desired to be more released to, to multiply churches and movements at that time. Okay. And so how did you handed the church over to other, other leaders? Yes, I handed it over to five elders. Okay. And then what, what's your life looked like since? What, how has that worked itself out? Um, we were, me and several, I invited several others. We went all the way back to Chicago, I guess, was that December? Um, I can't remember the exact date. I think that was 2011 of December where there was a large group that met there with Inkai and Steve Smith. And that's whenever I got a clearer picture of, of T for T. We were already using a lot of the principles um, that we had used for many years, person of peace, a lot of that. But I, I got a, a clearer picture and I met this young man named Trey Nine, who was a local hip hop artist who had just a desire to go after disciples and plant churches. And that led my connection with him. I started mentoring and discipling him. And that led to the network's growth and us penetrating into urban centers and hip hop culture. There in Houston? That's correct. In okay. Houston. So you began, a, a, I guess, um, playing more the role of a movement catalyst, a trainer, a coach. That's correct. Yes. And, and, you know, I'd, I'd asked the crossroads to send me out to start this new network and to, to focus on starting other networks and identifying other movement leaders. Okay. And um, the, the two areas of focus are Houston and the Horn of Africa. That's correct. That's okay. correct. Two cities. I feel like called the two gateway cities. Yeah. And so um, tell us how it's unfolded in Houston. What, what, does your, what, what does your role look like? 
Um, we now in Houston, you know, a short time after that, Ray Vaughn came to Houston and he and I started partnering together and, and praying together and talking about the vision of no place left. And then we've added, we have three and we're even starting a fourth network. So we're birthing new networks and it's gotten to where now we're about four or five networks in the greater Houston area that are working together to accomplish and complete the No Place Left vision here. And we say we want to see reproducing churches in 165 zip codes here in the greater Houston area. Okay. And so how do you fulfill your role then as in those, you know, seeking to build four networks across the city? What what does that look like? Well, I mean, there, there are certainly regular um, gatherings of leaders, and we even have, have some broader network gatherings where periodically all of our networks will will come together. And my role is kind of the spiritual pops with all these guys. I'm about 20 years older than all of them. Uh, and so I, I kind of serve as a father. And, you know, used to when I was younger, I'm a hyper um, kind of competitive guy. I wanted to do it all myself, and I'm learning to die to that and, and to cheer on these young guys and to do all I can to support them as they do it and celebrate that reality and fact as being known yet unknown. Okay. Well, why don't you tell us the story a bit of, of um, the hip-hop brother? Um, yes. Just, just tell us a little bit about his ministry and what he's doing. Yeah, so Trey Nine is a hip-hop artist that just – really um, wanted to see more than just entertainment. He got a real passion for multiplying disciples and he was looking for someone to help him with that. Really effective evangelist, has some strong apostolic gifting as well. He's really entrepreneurial in a lot of ways. And so I started meeting with him and one of the first things I started talking to him about is that we've got to get it beyond just the stage of presenting the gospel to where you're training every person. If people come to Christ at these events, well, then how are we going to teach them to take the gospel to their oikosis, to their networks of relationships? And I said, it has to be something simple and reproducible. And about that time, you know, I'd been using, you know, simple forms of gospel share, like the bridge and other things like that. But when we met Ray, he introduced us to the three circles. And the three circles have been a phenomenal tool among that hip-hop culture. They're very visual. And so we started training all of these artists in, in the three circles. And then they started training people. When they came to Christ, they immediately started training them. And so we started seeing the gospel and gospel shares going out like, I mean, it was just spread like wildfire. And so these guys were no longer just sharing through hip-hop, the gospel through a hip-hop but then they were teaching everyday people how to reach their families and their networks, neighborhoods and oikoses and what we call a ministry map. And so that, that really started the spread of the gospel in amazing ways. Okay. And how did that work itself into discipleship and church formation? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. And then a part of that we started working on, we'd already been using kind of some three thirds DNA pieces, but with that, we, we adopted the, the, the three-thirds with its parts, you know, and, with, and we started teaching that down. We developed a short-term 
discipleship set of commands with nine different commands. And so when we lead someone to Christ, we take them through their identity, you know, teach them that they're an ambassador, a new creation. They've got a ministry and a message. And then we start taking them through nine story sets of what it means to be a healthy church and the commands of Christ and started moving them towards discipleship and identifying as part of the healthy local church. Okay. And what are you learning about sort of moving? Obviously, the gospel's getting out, but what are you learning about um, seeing people move into discipleship and church formation? Well, I mean, of course, always it's, it's not easy. Sometimes it looks a lot better on paper. I mean, because there's a lot of difficulty and suffering and the follow up and follow through is so key. And in typical in urban and suburban cultures, we're so isolated and disconnected that that is the hard part is getting people to follow through. And one of the things that we are seeing happen is if we are winning people in that already a normal everyday connection in relationship, then it's a lot easier to follow through with the discipleship. Mm. And so that's been key. We've learned, we've learned a lot about that. Okay. And have you seen yet um, second, third generations of churches? Yes, we have a fourth, fourth generation um, church that's been, that's been reproduced. Um, And it's, you know, it's to say that it's super healthy is, you know, it's just beginning, and it, it, but is that we, the Corinthian church or the Galatian church? I, I don't know. <laughs> Probably both. Put them together. <laughs> yeah. Have you got anyone in in those churches called Ananias and Sapphira? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that they're here anymore. <laughs> yeah. So so discipleship's a challenge, but you yes. are seeing. Um, generational growth of churches. That is correct. Yes. Yes. Slowly and surely. I mean, that one of the big things that I've struggled with here for all these years is, is, is getting pushed down here in this culture and context, third to fourth generation and beyond. We've gotten a third generation multiple times here. So really since 1997, we have with multiple mm-hmm. leaders and huddle coaches and catalysts, but, We've had a hard time getting fourth gen and beyond. Okay. Well, most of the people listening in a Western setting right now, they're saying, tell us how you got to third generation. So, because that's their challenge. Right. So, so just what have you learned about getting to that third generation? Well, I think that, you know, one of the things that we would, would do is teach the you know, that first generation to be thinking about being good grandparents and how can they help their children? How can they help their children raise good children? I mean, I've just now become a grandfather and I, I want to see my children be good parents. And so one of the things that we talked about is how can you help the second generation be a good, you know, parent to the third generation and beyond? So also thinking towards the edge has been real key, thinking towards the, those further generations. What do you need to do to nurture those relationships and to nurture those leaders to reproduce further and beyond? Okay. And um, how many, have you got some idea of how many churches across Houston that have been started and how many have got to second or third? 
Yes. I mean, we, we have, I mean, we've got multiple networks going, but right, that hip hop network, I think is at 12 or 13 and has two different streams that are at that third and fourth gen place in there in, in those, those 12 churches. It's about, I think it's only like three different streams, but two of them have already reached to the third generation and beyond. Okay. And if you walked into one of those hip hop churches, have you, have you personally visited any of them? Oh yes. Yes. What absolutely. What would it be like? What, what sort of people would be in the room? It's very eclectic in a sense of, or, or very mixed as far as background, even ethnically. It's actually a beautiful picture of the mosaic of, of the greater Houston area. I mean, Houston is an extremely diverse city. And, but unfortunately, typically on Sunday morning, it's very segregated still. But if you were to go into all of these churches, you would see a sh- different shade of color from white to black, I mean, brown in between. It's just a beautiful picture of the mosaic of the beauty of the body of Christ. That's one of the things that is really beautiful. It's very it's very ethnically diverse. Okay. And what sort of, are they typically young men because of that whole hip-hop thing? That's, a, that's actually a really good question and insightful of you. It's been very effective at reaching men. But a lot of them also are very young and even a lot of children. Um, you know, one of the strategies, the entrance strategy is what we call events with intent. And so we do these hip hop hopes. They do the hip hop hopes. They go into an area, uh, usually a very underserved area, uh, utilize hip hop. And, and, and they have an hour program where they feed, share the gospel, do hip hop. And then they begin to, to filter and to funnel those guys into disciple-making relationships that leads to gathering in churches. Mm. Okay. And I've got a feeling most of these guys, those guys would not, it's not as though they're going to walk into a normal church, are they? Yeah, that's correct. A lot of them have have backgrounds. You know, they're carrying felonies. They've got um, gang tattoos, um, and, and a lot of them have felt rejected by you know most church background or christians even can you think maybe you can change his name but can you think of an example of someone in one of those groups whose life has been turned around yeah there's there's been multiple which has led to some part of the the connection we have multiple guys who have come through the prison system have come out and we've trained them in the prison system. So there's a connection here. The real movement is happening in the prison systems. Um, and we haven't even talked about that, but that's mm-hmm. connected to this. In the last four months, I think we've seen over 55 churches multiplied in the prisons around the state of Texas, where it's covered more than 10% of the units. Um, and there's a bunch of us working together on that. And so we've had guys come out of those units that are, discipling, uh, leading and help facilitating churches that their lives have just been radically, radically transformed. And where the the areas where they were bringing destruction, they're now bringing the reconciliation of Christ. And they're able to reach guys that you and I would never be able to reach. Mm -hmm. 
So tell us some more about the work in the prisons. Are you directly involved or is that one of the leaders that you partner with? I, I am directly involved and we have a team. Um, one of the key multipliers is a guy who was in a unit for 17 years and Woods Edge is, is, is helping him follow up on many guys that there was one particular unit. This is a good story that they'll help you get a picture of this. I call it the dandelion effect, kind of the ax eight effect. We had one unit in Texas that came under litigation because it was so hot and we had a team in there. I mean, I mean, temperature hot, bad, mm -hmm. inhumane type of hot. And we had a team in there that was training them, but, but because of the litigation, they, they took all of those guys and basically sent them all over the state. And this team was disappointed, just struggled, almost depressed about it. And we were like, man, what are we going to do? Well, what happened is, is out of that, at that time, it was very difficult for us to, to swallow. But then we, we had a guy, David Temple, with the help of Woods Edge, started following up all the guys that they were training and started planting churches in multiple units all over the state of Texas. And I'd been praying for a long time, how are we going to get the No Place Left vision to all these other re regions beyond Region 3, which is kind of around the Houston area? So through that one situation where the, all of the guys in that unit got moved out, David and, 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 a, and a woman named Bonnie Taylor have helped faithfully follow those guys up. And it's led to multiplication of so many different churches, and it's been exciting. Wow. So what does a church look like in, in, in the prison system? Well, I mean, we say that it's a gathering, you know, a gathering that's based upon Christ, that has caring leaders, that has New Testament characteristics, that has covenant, and has children. I would call that the five C's of healthy reproducing church. And so they can gather anytime, anywhere. Now, some units are a little more open to them gathering than others. Sometimes it makes it difficult. We also have a lot of Christian dorms in Texas. So they're dorm rooms that are faith-based. And so we have gatherings there in day rooms, out in the wreck, just wherever they can gather. We train them to gather how to do the three-thirds, how to be a healthy church, and how to reproduce disciples and share the gospel and then develop leaders and just turn it loose. Wow. Isn't that wonderful? Yeah, it's amazing. You, you get paid to do this? <laughs> 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 I think there's something like a, a million people in prison in the U.S. Yes. Um, right now. And uh, so it's wonderful to hear that the gospel is, is touching the prison system. Yeah, see, and, they, and one of the things about the, the prison system is that there is that proximity catalyst there. They're daily in one another's lives. And, mm. and it really, when we see the gospel and discipleship cast hold there, we've seen entire units really transform so much so that the wardens have asked for us to come in and to begin to train and, and reproduce this in their unit because it lowers crime, it, you mm. know, recidivism. Is, is helped to so many things are by the transforming power of the gospel are changed in those units. And so yeah. the wardens are seeing that. Wow. Okay. So 
tell us a bit, uh, we've, we've spent a lot of time on Houston, but you also have a heart for the Horn of Africa. Yes. Um, tell us what God's been doing alongside of the work in Houston. What's unfolded in your partnership there? Man, the most amazing, <clears throat> the most amazing things have happened, particularly over the last 10 years. Um, it, it's, it's hard for me almost to not get emotional about it because for years we prayed for Somalis for, for mm. years. And um, if, you, if you've read the insanity of God, I don't know if you have, but many probably out there have. And the, I partnered with the author in Addis and he really handed off to me the vision for Somalis. And I just had a heart for Somalis and the whole horn. And we started seeing Somalis come to Christ at first by the dozens and then the hundreds. And then we started seeing reproducing disciples and churches. And then we started seeing guys go across the border and plant and, you know, reproducing churches in some key cities in Somalia. And I mean, that is happening, Steve, around every, every out of Ethiopia, every surrounding country in the horn and, and even Many of the refugee camps, we're seeing the gospel being spread, leaders being developed, disciples being multiplied, and churches being multiplied in every nation around Ethiopia. That'd be northern Kenya, Somalia, Djibouti, Eritrea, North Sudan, and South Sudan. And I mean, it's been spreading like wildfire. And typically, these folk are a Muslim background? It's, it's Muslim background. Orthodox background and animist typically are the three main backgrounds. And are you seeing um, people turning and believing from each of those backgrounds? Yes, absolutely. I just got back from Orthodox background in in Northern Ethiopia. We've been working in the South. Uh, There's been several places where I've gone into villages and I was the only outsider ever to come in there Mm -hmm. and entire villages have come to Christ with mosques shut down. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's been most of the some of the most incredible stuff you've ever seen with the most amazing stories of even signs and wonders and just God doing incredible stuff. And all this has started really with the entrance strategy of rolling out a soccer ball. Tell us about that. So um, basically I, I work with the partner with, he's my brother. I mean, we're family. And he has been a key leader in, in Ethiopian football and soccer background. He was on the national team, but he also was a part of FIFA. And he helped start a kind of a nonprofit, a, a missions group that was a, using football as a strategy to build relationships in communities and share the gospel. And that started happening, and it's really spread like wildfire. I think that was – I'm trying to think. I think it was a, ooh, 2006-7-ish when he started it, and it, it is multiplied all over that nation and even Africa as a key strategy for gospel sharing. But the emphasis was gospel sharing, but this guy had a heart to see follow-up and movement happen, and he and I partner – to, to work together to see that happen. And, and so the way of connecting with a community is offering uh, to train kids in playing soccer. That is correct. And so they train the coaches 
to start out by just, you know, building relationships with the kids. And these are in very hot, high persecutory environments. So there needs to be real wise training, but also they're very xenophobic, very don't want any outsiders. And they'll say, you know, we, what, what are you doing here? We don't want you here. But because of the soccer piece, they're like, we like you here. We want you here. Help keep, you know, teach our kids the game of soccer. And, and as a result, it gives the coaches an opportunity to teach them about Jesus, his character, and the gospel. Wow. And for probably most American listeners, they don't understand that soccer or it's called football is, That's correct. is the world game. It is a religion. <laughs> yes, that is correct. And so okay, so God's using that as an entry strategy. So for the outsider to come in and win trust, share the gospel, how does it jump then in, into the community where you're seeing discipleship and church formation? Well, there's been, um, you know, several different ways that, that this has happened, but typically we train the coaches once, the, once they start seeing the kids come to Christ and then begin to gather them as a team and then begin to transition the team to be church together. And but then that's also spilled over into their families as well. So and there's been several instances where, and particularly like I told you, where the entire village is converted. One happened where an imam's an imam, a key leader, Muslim leader's son, was on one of the teams, and his wife, the son's mother, had been extremely ill for years, and it the coach had continued to ask the team, how can we pray? And it came up eventually. He noticed one of the boys was really sad and kept asking him about it. And it came up that his mother was ill and everything they tried, nothing had worked. Well, over a process of time, it led the coach to lead the team to go pray with the mother. And there was a manifestation of some real demonic activity when that happened so much so that it caused such a stir in the village that the mom, the dad was running back to the house because there was such commotion going on inside the house that he was running back with, I don't know if it was a sickle or an implement, you know, to come back and to protect his home or whatever. When he got there, his wife had been healed and delivered. And he, he said, I don't know what power this is or what is happening, but I am open to hearing about this. And it eventually led to him giving his own home for the team and the church to gather in. And that led to that village being transformed by the gospel. Wow. Wow. And so you're the outsider, you know, and I, I, I've got a feeling you would stand out somewhere in the Horn of Africa. Yes, sir. So what's your role then? And, you know, you live in Houston. So yes. what's your role as a partner with what God's doing then? I Man, I just do whatever I can to help get out of the way and do all I can to, to pour gas on the fire, to sustain under underlying works. We've given taxis. We've given coffee seeds. We've given concrete machines that have helped sustain businesses for our church planters and evangelists to be able to gather support and acceptance in communities. So we've done a lot of that. 
and uh, I go around and I do a, I do a, I'm on a one per five year rotation with the guys just because it's so dangerous where we will go in and do trainings with the indigenous leaders. But my role is strictly behind the scenes and it's very underground in the very places we go. And many times we travel a day and a half, though the infrastructure's gotten a lot better. It's a brutal travel when I go. And what's your role in terms of key leaders? How, how do you get alongside of them and encourage them and equip them? Yeah, I basically, I, I, you know, we have our, our key leader that works with different catalysts. So there's 11 strategic kind of areas that we work with, and they're all around the border. And so I am very close with kind of, he's, I just consider him the Apostle Paul of Ethiopia. I mean, his story is unbelievable. And so he works with all of these other young catalysts, and I get some exposure to them, but I do all I can to support him as he is supporting them. And then the idea is raising up successors because he's a few years older than me. And so we're trying to raise up in each of these regions apostolic leaders that are going to go after the No Place Left vision. Wow. So you're sort of playing Barnabas to his Paul. That's correct. That's correct. Wow. And we've been very close since 1999. I trained some elders with him in the capital city on that first trip that I talked about that I went on. I trained some of his guys as well as I partnered with one of the largest, you know, missions organization. I helped, you know, mentor and develop their, some of their leaders in the city and still do to this day. Mm. Well, it's a wonderful story, Guy, really. Of, um, I just love the way that God is using, you know, overwhelmingly the locals are, are winning uh, their region of the world. But the partnership here that uh, we're in this together as, as a global body of Christ, it's wonderful. Yes, it's a beautiful thing to be a part of. It's, I'm, I'm, I'm very grateful to be a part of it. What are you trusting God for in Houston and in the Horn of Africa? What is it that he's put on your heart? One of the key things in both areas is to see, you know, reproducing network leaders, which is a different way of thinking for me. It's probably this past year, if you were to ask me, what's one of the key areas of shift in your thinking is now I'm thinking reproducing networks. And so what I'm saying is we need multiple 120s. We need multiple um, upper room, you know, experiences where networks are, are exploding and multiplying all over the city and all over the horn. And with that, we also need sustainability, um, meaning that we need resources. And so starting kingdom professional businesses has been a big piece on my heart. We've been starting them in the Horn of Africa for years, but now I've even started a moving company where myself and one of the other networks work together with this moving truck to not only share the gospel, but to sustain the workers. And so that we are not, as Paul said, not depending upon anyone else, that we are working and providing out of our own means to resource the gospel in the kingdom. Mm. And what about for Houston? Is it similar there that um, what you're seeing is we just need for a city, what, of 6.5 million, we've got to multiply networks and streams of church planting? 
That's correct. Yes. I mean, that is, that is key. And then one of the things this, this coming Sunday, we will be commissioning a network out of our network, which is, um, which is a huge blessing. And I don't know if, you know, years ago I could have done simply because of the, what happens is you feel like you're letting go of resources. So <laughs> that's one of the things about letting go of stuff is if, if, if you have underlying resources, you know, that you're being able to establish through business, it allows me to be a lot freer to be able to just say, well, I can release all of that because I'm not depending upon any resources from any of those churches to support me because I have a business that's supporting me and it's allowing me to be free, to be more of a network multiplier. Mm. So looking back to when it began in the late 80s and the journey you've been on since then, what's the one lesson that comes to mind that God has taught you that's absolutely foundational? Man, that's a great question. But I, I think the key, brother, for me was um, when I came to Christ, I'll just be honest with you. When I came to Christ, I thought finally God had some cool people on his team. I mean, I, I really did think that. I thought that mm-hmm. I, that most Christians were just kind of uh, ice cream eating, coffee drinking dorks. I'm sorry. I'm not. Yeah, I don't, yeah. <laughs> that, that was just my perception. And I was an athlete, a jock, a mm-hmm. cool guy. And I just thought, man, finally, God's got some cool people on his team. So we're going to see some stuff happen. So you can only imagine the kind of brokenness and smashing I've had to walk through to, to mm-hmm. see some of that delivered for me and so much stuff that I've learned. And for me, the key is, is guy, get out of the way. Guy, surrender. Stop making stuff happen and see where God's at work and just join him. Have the depth of character to surrender and to die moment by moment day by day. If we're not abiding in Christ at the deepest level, and it's not powered by the Spirit, all of our tools and all of our strategy is meaningless. Drop by movements.net for links to Guy's ministry and to plenty of other resources available for people who want to multiply disciples and churches everywhere. This has been Steve Addison for the Movements Podcast. Podcast.